Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code staple two zero. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, this week's episodes might be categorized as a bit of a historic hot potato. (laughs) Um, this week, we deliver a two-parter, which has been much requested over the last five years of making the show. It is an episode on Scottish dress and the incredibly fascinating and political backstory of the nation's iconic tartans. Ah, uh, yes. So, so requested, including by my sister Haley. So this one's for you. <laughs> Deemed dangerous and divisive during the 18th century and romanticized and codified in the 19th I have to say there are few textiles in the history of dress that have been tamed and reclaimed as has the Scottish tartan. And while considered by many as quote-unquote traditional today, don't be surprised, listeners, if this week we challenge a lot of what you thought you knew about this quintessentially Scottish textile. And we are so pleased that one of the world's leading scholars on the topic, Dr. Rosie Wayne, joins us today to discuss her new book, Highland Style, Fashioning Highland Dress, circa 1745 to 1845. Dr. Wayne is the William Grant Foundation Research Fellow at the National Museum Scotland in Edinburgh, and a specialist in the history of Scottish, and in particular, Highland dress. Dr. Wayne, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Dr. Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So several months ago, one of the communication officers for the National Museum Scotland reached out to us to share the news that your book, Highland Style, Fashioning Highland Dress, circa 1745 to 1845, was about to be released. And I was thrilled because an episode on Scottish dress and tartans in particular had been sitting on my list of potential future topics for (laughs) quite some time now, maybe like almost five years now. (laughs) So I am delighted that we finally get to realize this episode with you today. Oh, I'm very happy to help. Love talking about Scottish dress. 
Well, and I'm excited to learn more. So there's that. The first question I would like to ask you is actually one that we ask a lot of our guests who have sort of parlayed their very deep uh, fascination and love of dress history into their profession. Would you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you first come to the field and what is your current role at the National Museum Scotland? So I am a fashion and textile historian and a museum professional. I specialise in 18th and 19th century dress uh, specifically, mainly Scottish dress. My interest in the field started when I was actually doing my undergraduate in history. Um, I was very interested in the 18th century and particularly the material culture of the 18th century. And that quite naturally developed into a love of the material culture of textiles because I actually come from a family of sewists and quilters. And so understanding the history of that culture just became more, more and more interesting to me. So that developed from a love of studying men's fashion, particularly in the 18th century from my undergraduate into doing a master's of history in sampler making in the 18th and 19th century, because uh, I at that time was trying to learn how to sew. <laughs> uh, and then that developed into a PhD that looked at the mainly the material cultures of textiles uh, during periods of unrest in British and American history. So one of my interests in, in developing my MA was uh, how sampler making could be used as um, self-expression uh, for the makers. And that got me thinking about how textiles could be used in a political or a patriotic way or in a rebellious way. Uh, and that sort of naturally led into me being interested in the history of, of textiles as a kind of political tool. So my PhD looked specifically at homespun in America during the revolution and tartan and the Jacobites in Scotland. And then magically at the end of my PhD, which was hard won after four years, a job came up at the National Museum of Scotland looking at their quite large tartan and highland dress collection. And I'd spent many years by that point sort of learning how to get access to museum collections, special collections, and working with them and learning that kind of object methodology. So it was kind of a godsend when this job came off at the time. <sighs> oh, when do you ever really, as a researcher, get to study the thing in depth that you're really, really interested in. I'm sure that's the case for so many people who finish their PhDs. They're like, oh, I'm never going to look at this again unless I get that specific job that allows me to do it. At present, I am the William Grant Foundation Research Fellow at National Museum Scotland. The William Grant Foundation have been very supportive over the last four and a half years in developing this project around our tartan and highland dress collections. The funding has, has been renewed a few times. So we've been able to do a few different stages of the project, the most recent being the creation of the book, Highland Style, which is based on my initial research into the collection, which spanned from 2018 to 2020. So that initial stage was doing a survey of the entire collection and figuring out exactly what we have, when we got it, how we might be able to display it in future or further research that could be done and funded. The next stage between 2020 and 2022 was working on this book, as well as conserving objects from the collection, photographing them and making them available through um, digital resources online. 
And now we're in the final stage of the project, the last year, which runs until May 2023, which is collecting modern and contemporary Highland dress. So trying to grow the collection further because it, it's very good in terms of its uh, 18th, 19th, 20th century dress. But then we kind of stopped collecting at the end of the 20th century when it came to Highland dress. And we're now in 2022 and it would be good to, to have that material record of what's going on in Highland dress in the 21st century. So that is what I'm currently doing. I'm going to be carrying on with that until spring next year. So to answer your question, I fell into the museum world quite naturally <laughs> through becoming obsessed with particular textiles and a job coming up at exactly the right time. I love that so much. It's almost like it was complete kismet. It fated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so as you've already kind of alluded to, your book draws entirely from the very rich resources of the dress collections at the National Museum Scotland. Might you share with us a little bit about the National Museum's mission and also the dress and textile collections specifically? So National Museums Scotland is a consortium of four museums, actually. Uh, the National Museum of Rural Life, the National Museum of Flight, the National War Museum, and the sort of main one that everyone's heard of, National Museum of Scotland, which is based in Edinburgh's old town. I want to mention all of these different ones just to sort of highlight the diversity of interest that we have as a museum consortium. And it's one that's developed over quite literally centuries. <laughs> um, the museum itself dates back to the late 18th century and the founding of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland in Edinburgh in 1780 by David Erskine, who's the 11th Earl of Buchan. So when that first started in the late 18th century, it was about collecting not only the material culture of Scotland, but also material cultures of, of other cultures around the world and also natural, natural history as well. During the 19th century, that was amalgamated with a different museum, uh, which became known as the Royal Scottish Museum, that were more interested in things like science and technology, um, art and sciences, very much developing from that um, Victorian industrialist mindset at the time, sort of a museum of industry. Uh, and then during the 20th century, the Society of Antiquaries Museum and the Royal Scottish Museum amalgamated and became this very diverse and materially crazy, really, um, <laughs> <laughs> amalgamation of different objects in the, I think it was 1985. And we now care for, because of this long and quite complex institutional history, we now care for millions of objects, which come from really not just in Scotland, but from all around the world. Um, and that's a very interesting and, and complex legacy to, to sort of to navigate. The dress and textiles collection, as we now know it, is based on the collecting activities of all these different museums that I've mentioned. So the kind of dress and textiles we have come from many different time periods and many different places. The Highland and uh, Highland dress and tartan side of the collection comes from largely the collecting activities of the Royal Scottish Museum, which at the same time as, is, as it was sort of building it's you know, Scottish material culture collections. It was also building world cultures of dress collections, ethnographical collections. So I 
it's a it's also a collection which continues to evolve as well like it's we're as an institution we want to to build on the idea of contemporary collecting that the museum is a living thing and those collections will continue to grow yeah for sure and and you know this isn't something that we have really talked about too too much on the podcast so maybe at some point we will do an episode on this but there is a whole field of study that is just museology like like the theory behind collecting and displaying things at museums. And it's complicated and it's highly political sometimes. So um, sometime, maybe we'll do an episode on that one day. It's fascinating. It is, it is really fascinating. Like just to, to say the first chapter of my book, um, Highland Style, looks at how the Highland dress and tartan collections grew in that very museological collections history sort of way to show that Collections are these strange organic things that sort of come into existence as much from the collecting interests of the individual as well as external pressures on institutions to collect particular things at particular times to, as you say, like reflect the, the political landscape of what's going on or the cultural landscape. Um, so, yeah, as a historian, I find that absolutely fascinating. And I'd love to listen to that episode if you ever do it. Okay, cool. Coming up, maybe season six. <laughs> <laughs> We have used this term now, Highland, several times. For any of our listeners who might not necessarily be familiar with Scottish history, what, and perhaps also when and where, does this term Highland refer to? That's a really excellent question. It's one that has many answers. (laughs) Um, So geographically speaking, the Highlands are a region of Scotland that cover largely the the upper portion of the country. Uh, Topographically, speaking the highlands are more mountainous than the rest of the country which has created what some call a highland line um so you know, we have the highlands on one side the lowlands literal lowlands on the other um but this topographical sort of shift has historically created not only a, a sort of physical divide between the highland and lowland regions of scotland but also a cultural one um so for instance the clan system characterised by chiefs and retainers, was an aspect of early modern Highland culture, very much tied to the traditions of heritable land use in the Highlands. Um, The historical cultivation of the Gaelic language in the Highlands also is is a result of this topographical uh, uh, divide. A lot of the elements that people think of as distinctively Scottish nowadays have their roots in this late uh, early modern culture of Highland clanship, so that the clan warriors, the bagpipes, and the Highland dress being prime examples. Um, there's also this, what you might call the imagined Highlands, which is the idealization of Highland culture and traditions um, that really began to emerge in the sort of middle decades of the 18th century really ramped up during the Victorian period and still has a legacy for contemporary uh, Scots and Highlanders today. And Tartan is slap bang in the middle of that. And I think it's a very interesting evolution. I think it's been at some points misunderstood or oversimplified. So for instance, there is a, a theory, particularly in Highland dress studies, around the invention of of Highland traditions, whereas I'm more of a studier of living traditions, how things like Highland dress and tartan organically evolved 
over a, a long period of time to become part of Scotland, uh, Scotland's identity and iconography quite naturally. Um, so hopefully that answers your questions about the multiplicity of identities that the Highlands kind of have. Um, yes. Geographically, <laughs> geographically, culturally, yeah. Well, and to that point of of the multiplicities, in the foreword of your book, which was written by David Grant, he writes, Highland dress is both a complex and controversial topic. And I think that it might surprise some of our listeners that a lot of that controversy is of a political nature, stemming from events that date all the way back to the 18th century. I'm hoping that you might do us the honors of setting up the scene a little bit so that we can contextualize how and why Highland dress was politicized at that time. The political nature of tartan and Highland dress can be traced back to largely the late 17th century and early 18th century, um, particularly around the Act of Union of 1707, which forged what we now would call Great Britain, so the joining of Scotland and England, as well as Jacobitism, which for your listeners who don't know, uh, Jacobitism is a movement that began really in the late 17th century with the what some historians refer to as the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which was when uh, King James II of England and seventh of Scotland was forced to abdicate his throne because he was seen as a unsuitable king for England and Scotland at that time. Uh, he was replaced by King William and Queen Mary. And really, that's the start of the, the sort of Protestant monarchy that we are familiar with today in, in Britain. Um, so the Jacobites, which derives from the name James, i.e. King James, they were a movement not only in Scotland, but in Britain and in other parts of Europe to try and cause uh, the, the, the Stuart line to be reinstated in, in the British line of succession. So the line of Stuart kings, of which James was a part, is rooted in Scottish history and culture. And so tartan and Highland dress, which at that time were becoming less exclusively Highland and more seen as stereotypically Scottish, were latched onto as, as symbols of anti-union feeling for people who didn't want to be part of the union with, with England, as well as pro-Jacobite feeling for people who wanted the return of the Stuart monarchs. And this, over the course of several decades, we sort of grew tartan and Highland dress into what we understand it as today as being this, this badge of perhaps rebellious Scottishness, uh, as well as a national icon of Scotland. So with the failure of the Jacobite rebellion of 1745 to 46, you have an act of parliament which banned Highland dress because it was seen as a rebellious icon, as well as a an icon which had a lot of martial power behind it, because it was being used as almost like a recruiting tool, as a rallying tool for, for those who wanted to join the Jacobite cause. It only applied in Scotland to Scots who were using tartan in this way, in this rebellious political way. However, there was an exception for those who served in the British military. So that was the government and to an extent, the Hanoverian monarchy, turning Tartan into a symbol of, of state power as opposed to rebellious power. 
Oh, that's fascinating. It, it was a very interesting shift in the history of the costume because up until that point, tartan and Highland dress had been seen as primarily Highland and then primarily Scottish and then primarily rebellious. So to harness it in this way and turn it... Well, it's almost taking something that was subversive and then, quote-unquote, legitimizing it in a different way that is purely about power. Yes, yes, for sure. Like, the the legislation is very interesting because it, it says that for those who... So it's referred to as the Dress Act or the Act of Prescription most of the time. Um, there are a few different names for this piece of legislation, but it referred to not just Highland dress, but also the type of weapons that are socially, uh, that are associated with that dress. So it was a way of sort of tamping down on what was seen as rebellious aspect of Highland and Scottish culture and, and turning it into this, this powerful symbol of state. And the fact that they were able to incorporate those symbols then into the army at a time when um, Britain was at war with everybody and sending Scottish soldiers everywhere around the world just really transformed this rebellious dress into a patriot dress and really cemented this icon of Scotland into the iconography of Britain. Right. And if for any of our listeners who don't think that dress can be political... <laughs> Here's proof right now (laughs) that it is. So in many ways, the story of Highland dress is also the story of tartans. How do you define tartan? And also, how does tartan differ from this term plaid? And how are you going to, or how would you like to use that term plaid moving forward today if we use it? So with woven tartans, it usually means an identically arranged warp and an identically arranged weft meeting together to create a grid. So for tartan, for it to be different from a check, it tends to need more than two colours, so that you'd have in the blend of those meeting warp and weft threads, you'll have um, two solid colours and then one blended colour. So it creates that depth that tartan has. So that's and it's usually a twill weave as well instead of a plane. That's very applicable to historic tartans in particular, but nowadays it's more the pattern that people are referring to when they say tartan as opposed to the actual weave structure of it. Mm -hmm. But it differs from plaid in my mind because when I think of plaid, I I tend to think more of a generic check. Also, plaid doesn't have that specific Scottish context that that tartan tends to have in the popular imagination. Also, historically speaking, plaid is more of a garment in in Scottish vernacular than it is a pattern. Yeah, I thought that this is something that I learned and I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. So (laughs) what what is plaid as a garment? So a plaid is, historically speaking, a plaid would be a large shawl if it's you know, worn by a man or a woman, can be a shawl. For it to be a belted plaid, which is more of a male garment, that would typically be two lengths of uh, fabric sewn selvage to selvage to create quite a large rectangular piece of, of fabric, which could then be kilted and belted about the waist with the excess drawn up onto the shoulder or over the head uh, to provide a lot of protection in the highland weather, which is not very clement. Mm-hmm. As 
the decades went on and Highland dress became more tailored, particularly during the second half of the 18th century, the plaid became less utilitarian and became more decorative. So you'd have less of the big belted plaid or the felomore is what, what it would be called in Gaelic. And you'd have more over-the-shoulder blanket-style plaids, uh, which you do still see every now and again today. But again, as times changed, moved into the 19th century and fashions uh, went for more of a lean line on Highland dress, um, the plaid shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, became more tailored and became what we might recognise today as a fly plaid, which is more like a triangular piece of fabric, which can be you know, linked up from onto the shoulder with a brooch. So the plaid is, is one of those garments which, like many aspects of Highland dress, has evolved quite a lot over its history uh, and maybe that's where the confusion about using the word plaid comes from I don't know the fact that it's changed so many different times yeah no I I, I, I found this distinction between the two fascinating because people do today use those terms interchangeably for sure yeah particularly I found in the American context plaid plaid does get used more to refer to the pattern but yeah in in Scotland plaid isn't as much part of the vernacular of, of tartan patterns. And um, so as I'm talking today, I will be talking tartan and meaning the pattern and plaid meaning the garment. Yeah, perfect. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'd love to know a little more about the origins of and also the making of tartans in this region of the world. And I say this 
this region of the world. I point this out specifically because throughout history, we also do see tartan pattern motifs and textiles produced by many other cultures outside of Europe. Are there any distinguishing features that make a tartan a Scottish tartan? That's an excellent question. (laughs) (laughs) So you're absolutely right. If you think about it, since the, the birth of woven textiles, a check is the simplest decorative uh, kind of weave that you could produce, right? So th- the fact that it exists all around the world in so many different cultures shouldn't be surprising to anybody. When it comes to tartan, Scottish tartan, how we would think of it as as being uniquely Scottish does really emerge more out of 18th and 19th century sensibilities around tartan um, rather than its, its pre-18th century origins as just a highland checked textile? Well, pre-18th century, I would like to talk about that a little bit because we love a good bit of myth busting here on Dressed. <laughs> Let's talk about Scottish clans and tartans. Prior to 1745, what was the relationship of specific tartans to specific families or clans? So myth busting, yes. That's mm-hmm. one of those things that's um, it's very fun to do when you're a tartan historian, do some myth busting. Um, so the idea of, of clan tartans, as we would know them today, was, was very much an early 19th century concept. I'm not saying it was invented out of nothing, because it's a tradition that has emerged, I would say, quite organically over a long period. But pre-1745, there is little evidence to suggest that anything like what we would characterise as clan tartans um, really existed. Uh, What you do have are perhaps what you might refer to, and this is a contentious term in tartan scholarship, so sorry guys, uh, district (laughs) district tartans or regional tartans. And it has more to do with what weavers in particular areas had access to in terms of dye stuffs uh, for creating different colours than it does with any kind of family identification with a pattern. Mm -hmm. So you have instances of, there are some recorded instances of clan chiefs talking about getting green and red tartans for their retainers to wear, but that perhaps says more about regional fashion than it does about a family preference or Mm -hmm. heraldic identification with those patterns. And also, I think prior to, I think there's also this misconception as well that everyone in a clan would be wearing the same tartan exactly the same way before 1745. But that, again, isn't particularly realistic. It's tartan, like any other kind of cloth that was made at the time, it's, it's sort of it would have been incorporated into dress in very different ways, different qualities, stylings. Like the tartan that a chief would wear would be extremely different to the tartan that one of their retainers or tenants would wear, particularly in terms of the amount of colours that would be in it. For instance, no matter whether a chief would buy green and red tartans for his you know, retainers, he would probably go for the tartan that would have the most red in it because it would use imported cochineal and so would be a symbol of status and how it would really have nothing to do with with his uh, family associations with those colors yeah well i mean i guess it's i mean that is that element of fashion coming mm-hmm. into dress right there you know uh the, the expense 
of the textile is referenced in its colorways. Yeah, I think also speaking about fashion, I, I was trying to be, when I wrote um, Highland Style, it might be evident in the subtitle Fashioning Highland Dress. And I think up until now, with some exceptions, in particular the work of Sally Tuckett, who's a great historian, the idea of tartan as fashion, of, of fashion being um, at play in what most people see as a stereotypical and traditional style of dress, it's quite staid and doesn't appear to, to change very often, uh, is a bit of a foreign concept. So to talk about its fashionable origins, its origins as part of Highland display culture, I, I think that can surprise people who don't study it or in, in any great depth, who aren't familiar with it in great depth. Yeah. Well, I mean, that leads me directly into my next question. And again, I think this is another little bit of myth busting here and, and will also be surprising to some of our audience that what we think of as quote unquote traditional Scottish dress was actually something that was actively codified in the 19th century. So how did this happen and who were the gatekeepers of quote unquote authenticity in these matters? So again, very good question. So, <laughs> and I'll be I'll be careful again not to go into the uh, the territory of invented tradition because I don't I don't subscribe to that model of of tartan research. But particularly during the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, there was a movement to quote unquote revive Highland dress and tartan following the repeal on the ban on Highland dress, which came in after the last Jacobite rising of 1745 to 46. The ban was lifted in 1782. So from that point on, you have largely Highland aristocrats, as well as more Scottish in general, gentry, trying to elevate the costume into an icon of distinct Scottish identity within the union with Britain. Particularly now, it's kind of divorced from its original rebellious context of, of Jacobitism and anti-unionism. And from there, it grew in popularity with the establishment of groups like the Highland Society of London, which were a, a group of largely Highland aristocrats, Scottish politicians, military men, uh, as well as merchants who were resident in London on either a permanent or like semi-permanent basis and wanted to have groups, like social groups, where they could get together and discuss how much they loved Scotland, uh, how much they enjoyed each other's company and the drinking of whiskey. Yeah. And just men's clubs in, in general during this time period were a whole big thing. Yeah, I could go into detail about the whole landscape of, of clubs like club culture, it, particularly in London and Edinburgh during the late 18th century, where there is this, this movement of, of upper-class men wanting that distinct masculine type of sociability. And there's a whole material culture that goes along with that. And in this particular instance, with people like the Highland Society of London, Highland Society of Scotland, Society of True Highlanders that, are based, that were based in Inverness, for them, Highland dress became this this emblem that they wanted to elevate not only as a symbol of their Scottishness but also of, of Scotland the nation and because they were so so many of them were quite influential figures in the politics and culture of the day they were able to make inroads with particularly the royal family so you have people like George the fourth who 
He wasn't a member of the Highland Society of London, but many of his brothers were, and they were a very close-knit group. And that led quite naturally to him getting into cahoots with people like Walter Scott, uh, who was one of the masterminds behind the 1822 visit of George IV to Edinburgh and the tartan explosion panorama of plaid um, <laughs> that, that happened um, during the summer of 1822, in which up until that point, tartan had been more for that Highland Society of London group of guys and, and their hangers-on. And suddenly it was launched onto the national stage through the state visit of George IV to Edinburgh. And because of that kind of public activity, you have a more public desire for tartan emerging and fashion being fashion, turning tartan into a very desirable commodity. So you have this 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 fashionable context as well as this more like national context coming together to to create the perfect environment for Highland dress to become codified because it becomes the the subject to such public scrutiny and because it's being used in so many high profile events. So the legacy of particularly 1822 fed into the Victorian period and then was again picked up by people like Queen Victoria uh, who in many ways, uh, created a lot of the, the the tartan traditions and Highland dress traditions that are still quite prevalent in Scotland today. So she was quite influential in reviving the idea of, of like retainers on her uh, estate in Balmoral and all her staff in Scotland being dressed in that perfect desired silhouette of Highland dress, and that being um, picked up by newspapers and being ported all over the country. It just sort of brought Highland dress into this this public consciousness and on a truly massive scale. And I don't think we've we've really come down from that. Right. But who was assigning the quote unquote rules, I guess, also too, as part of that codification? Well, there are quite a few different individuals who who you could probably claim had responsibility for that. The groups like the Highland Society of London and the Society of True Highlanders were quite influential in that space. Because being incorporating Highland dress so publicly into their club activities and public events gave them a sense of ownership over it, where they were able to dictate what should be worn and when. The Highland Society of London even started a tartan collection in the 1810s and early 20s, where it was one of the first instances I have been able to track down of a Scottish institution trying to codify the idea of clan tartans. They were very invested in this idea that all of their different families and, and, and subfamilies, what you might call clans and sets, um, would have their own individual tartan, which they could wear and be identified um, by in public. And this was underpinned by groups like by companies like Messrs Wilson of Bannockburn, who were the largest tartan weaving companies in the early 19th century. They'd supplied tartans for the military, and when tartan became more fashionable, they were creating a lot of different designs and, and patterns for public use, which included this idea of clan and family tartans. So you have this commercial side reinforcing the idea, and then you have the purchaser side codifying the idea. Mm-hmm. 
and that creating the sort of perfect storm. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us for only the first part of this incredibly enlightening discussion of Highland Style. And listeners, Dr. Wayne will, of course, be back later this week on Thursday to share oh so much more. And until then, may you consider the codes living in your closet next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dressed at iheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. Also, if you have the time and would like to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. Just like we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 